basically for every opportunity, there are two core fields in my CRM. There is next action, which is a text field, like a paragraph text field. And there's next action date. And everything is based on those two. When a rep logs in, they sort by next action date. You can see the thing that you got to do. Now, those two fields alone don't do shit for you. What it can do for you if your reps follow the process is at the end of every engagement with a customer, at the end of every call, they stop for two minutes and they say, this is what I'm going to do next. While all this context is in my head. Hi, I'm Lucas James. And I'm Jordan Ross. And we're the co-hosts of How to Scale an Agency. After scaling our own agencies to over $185,000 per month in sales and working with agencies doing hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue like Hawk Media and Neil Patel, we've made this show to interview the top digital marketing agency owners and highlight the fastest ways to scale your agency. If you'd like to join the best digital marketing agency community on the planet and let us help you scale, go to twiz.io to sign up today. All right, welcome agency owners. Welcome to another episode of How to Scale an Agency. I'm super, super excited today for this guest interview where I have a good friend, Colin Stewart, who is the founder of Predictable Revenue, a B2B outbound sales development agency that scales to $5 million in revenue and is really like one of the top names in the space when it comes to outbound sales development. So we're going to talk a lot today, you know, some of his secrets for prospecting, appointment setting, B2B sales process, and some lessons learned from scaling lead to an agency and building up to a 50-person team of SDRs. So yeah, really excited to dive into it all. How's it going, Colin? It's going pretty good. Apologies for my voice. I'm working through a cold that my son coughed into my mouth. So, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm strong enough. And then eventually it got me. But overall, it's been uh, an interesting first half of the year. Q2 is finished strong. Q3 is off to a good start. Yeah. Yeah. Glad to hear it. And um, yeah. no worries about being sick. I'm just glad you're here. Glad you can still make it like a trooper. Of course. Of course. I hate throwing off people's podcast schedule, you know. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> you just... myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Well, cool, man. Well, we're excited to dive in. Just for anyone who doesn't know, you just want to give a quick kind of intro to what you guys do at Predictable Revenue? Yeah, for sure. So I'm not a book. I know. I think that's probably <laughs> obvious. But back in 2014, I had built a CRM and then pivoted that into an outreach type tool, outreach sales lot type tool. And then I built a services business along the way to bootstrap it. We started this in 2012. And then in 2013, I met Aaron Ross, the guy who wrote the book. 2014, mm-hmm. we decided to merge the two companies together. And so 2014, I became the CEO of a book. Which is super weird because you know everybody associates the brand with Aaron, and it's been nearly ten years of that, which is doesn't really bother me. I kind of I don't mind being the guy kind of behind the scenes. Been a little bit more out in front with the podcast lately, though. But what we do, I mean, based on the methodology, well, the original PR methodology. We talk about the new PR methodology, but basically, we have two sides of the house. We help people build sales development teams, or we provide outsourced sales development reps based on our model methodology. What we've learned over the last ten years. Awesome. Yeah, I actually didn't know that. And we have spoken many times, but I always wanted to ask what the connection was with the book. I do remember you mentioned that you used to have a co-founder that is no longer working with you. So I guess that's that's him, right? That's actually Preston. So mm. I've, I've had two co-founders. I know that was the number three, but <laughs> two full co-founders. One was Preston. I had a couple others, kind of different ventures and different kind of versions of the business. But the OG CTO was Preston. He helped build all the tech. We parted ways when we deprioritized all the software. And then Aaron's still part of the business. He's not as mm. operational. He lives in Edinburgh in a castle and he's got his 11 or 12 kids. So wow. he's got a full-time job just for kids. I have two and I feel overwhelmed. He's got yeah. 11 and I, I don't understand. I don't understand. Yeah. I have zero. So two sounds like a lot. I can't even find them 11. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Same. <laughs> 
Yeah. That's awesome. So whatever ended up happening with the CRM and uh, have you ever been on building back then? Well, the CRM didn't have product market fit. We had one customer for it. We tested out and tried to do a bunch of interesting things with machine learning back in the day. What I really wanted to do was make the CRM a productivity tool for salespeople. And the way I thought we would accomplish that was sprinkle some machine learning over it and help prioritize deals and opportunities and tell the salespeople or the sales managers which deals were most likely to close. When we got into looking at the data, there just wasn't enough to do. The machine learning tech was there and capable. It was just really challenging to get enough good quality data to actually build anything on top of. And so that totally failed. We ended up building a, because we were bootstrapped, we never raised any external funding. So we built this for a distributor of tile and stone, and we customized it to their outside sales reps. And so we built this, we had one customer, but we realized that one customer in 18 months wasn't exactly hyperscale. I mean, it did look like a hockey stick at first, but a hockey stick in the wrong direction. And so we started off with the CRM and we pivoted that into a tool called carb.io, which was more of a sales engagement tool, like a sales loft or an outreach. So we pivoted that into a sales engagement tool, carb.io. And the whole idea was relive that or fulfill on that dream of sales productivity. When we looked at it from a CRM level and we wanted to get more data in, it was very clear that a workflow tool was the right solution. And we're like, okay, well, of all the salespeople, which salespeople are going to benefit most greatly from a workflow tool? And it was the ones with a high velocity that were in Salesforce a whole bunch because they were doing a lot of. I don't want to say meaningless, but like a lot of a higher volume of tasks. So every individual task means less to you. Whereas if you're an, an AE, you're probably only working 30 to 50 opportunities. And so we decided to focus on sales development reps. That's how we got in touch with Aaron. That's how we got into that space. What happened with it was a sales guy turned entrepreneur, made a bunch of bad decisions technically. And I might be easier to work with guy now, but I wasn't back then. And it was my way or the highway. And I started the company and I didn't listen to people. And so I made some really bad technical decisions that I shouldn't have. My CTO fought me on them and I didn't listen. I was the CEO. He had to listen to me, was my style back then. The short version is the platform had an amazing UI for replying to emails and sending emails. But the backend tech, because of some of the bad decisions I made, struggled to send emails. And I know mm-hmm. it sounds like a technical problem. You go, how could that be Colin's fault? It was. <laughs> we could get into the details later, and if anybody's curious, but yeah, it was. It was all about prioritization. We were. Ne- they were never able to prioritize the core things that were really important that I understand now. Gotcha. And then at that point, had you already started building Explorer, the lead, the company with with Aaron, or how they get born? Yeah, I mean, we were already doing exactly what we're doing now in order to pay for the software developers that were building the, the product. So when we were just with Aaron, it was a change in branding only and in acceleration because Aaron was bringing us deals and introducing us to customers and it added a lot. I mean, the brand is super strong. So now Aaron had the consulting side of the business. We had the sales outsourcing side of the business. We called it Accelerate because it wasn't truly outsourcing. We were using our own tool to send a bunch of emails, et cetera, et cetera. That's when the two of us came together. Yeah. Um, once you were all in on the uh, service on the business, it kind of shut down the tank. What were those first couple of years like? I mean, uh, they were good. It was sad to go from, I'm a software entrepreneur to I'm a yeah. services business. I think a lot of the mistakes that I made were because I didn't want to admit the reality that I run a services business, that my goal of getting starting Voltage and then Carb and then thrashing around was I wanted to build software. And I still do. 
but I, I think I was living a different reality. And so the first couple of years were rocky. We had some good years, but I think I wasn't running the business because I didn't want to. I was a part of the business, but I was looking for software opportunities. I was looking for a big strategic direction. I was looking for all these things. Somebody said the other day, like, there's only two questions that you should ask yourself. What should I do better? Or what can we do better as a company? And then once you've covered all of those, or most of those, what should we do next? And I didn't spend any time focusing on what can we do better? I only focused on what should we be doing next? And that was probably, I think that hurt PR quite a bit. We wasted a lot of money on software projects that, I mean, saw the light of day and added value, but yeah, we had to mothball. We'll probably bring them, hopefully bring them back later this year. But there was, um, <clears throat> yeah, the, the first couple of years were rocky. I feel like you know, I'm 11 years into this and like five years since we shut down the software. And I'm like, okay, I've, I've accepted that I run a services business. You know, we're working really hard on like building back some of that process that we lost when I wasn't paying attention. And the results year over year have been up for the customers. We found a new model. We've got a couple of new services that we've been launched that we've launched or a new service that we've launched this year. That's been pretty exciting. Once I started paying attention and when I say started paying attention, it also coincided with us shrinking the executive team. Like I had a big exec team, VP finance, VP sales development, basically a guy ran the outsourcing. And then somebody ran the coaching consulting with the changes that happened this year. This is August in 2023, revenue shrunk. And so our executive team had to shrink because we just couldn't afford these big high power folks. They were great people. They were absolutely great people. But I think the shrinking was actually the best case for all of us because they've gone off and found better jobs. And I've gotten more hands on with the business, which helped me realize why some of the issues we were having. I felt like a bit like I was driving a car, but the steering wheel wasn't attached. Like I'd try and turn and then the wheels wouldn't turn. And you're trying to figure out like, okay, what's going on? And we were lacking some core systems and processes that would contribute to us scale and then maintain a high quality at scale. And so I think that kind of that element of me being detached of not understanding those systems and processes really had a strong impact on, I mean, maybe the position that we were in at the beginning of this year and resulted in not so good of a first half of the year. Yeah. So just getting more hands-on kind of helped you see things at a, at a closer level and see what you need to do next. Totally. No, and I can definitely, and probably a lot of people watching this can relate to the whole thinking just about what to do next rather than what we can do better now. Definitely, especially for me, I'm a visionary entrepreneur for sure. So um, I can totally relate to making that mistake over and over again. And you were telling me a while back, I don't know how much that time relates to the shrinking, but when we first connected seven, eight months ago, you were telling me that for a while you had really tried to prioritize like revenue, but now you're trying to prioritize more like profitability and mm -hmm. less about that kind of top line. So was that part of the, you know, shrinking the executive team or was, was that kind of a review of that process before that happened? I mean, I think the shrinking of the exec team, like revenue shrunk in Q1. So that was a reaction. I think one thing I just wasn't like, well, I'm 11 years into this. And I started from like a software mindset where the only thing that matters is the growth rate. And so I was trying to find and focus on, okay, how do I triple, triple, double, double, double? And how do I refine? Like with when we launched Carb, the software, the sales automation tool, we went zero to 60K monthly recurring revenue in like two months. That was bad. Yeah, yeah, it was just that's the same chasing thing. the dragon. Yeah, yeah I can imagine. <laughs> How do I find that growth again? How do I find that growth again? When we launched the Accelerate service, we did a pretty similar... I think we were like zero to a million bucks in a year, like 12 months exactly on the services side, which I thought that's pretty fast, in my opinion, for a new services business with an idiot founder who had never built a services business before and had to figure out how to do everything from like hire to build process to all this stuff. 
Sorry, I think I lost the point of where we were going. Can you remind me the question? Oh, yeah. Okay. What led you to... It was about operating growth versus yeah. growth. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. It was this book. It was called Simple Numbers, Straight Talk. An advisor gave it to me. And the core message there was, it, it's very similar to if you've read The Automatic Millionaire or, or The Richest Man of Babylon, pay mm-hmm. yourself first. 10% goes into your bank account at the end of every month in all three books. And that 10% from the Simple Numbers, Straight Talk is... The goal of the company is a minimum of 10% operating profit or you're cutting people. And they've got an interesting way of going about doing that calculation. That's the core of the book. We were kind of flirting with 10% the last kind of 12 months and we were up and down and maybe a little bit under. And then we had a revenue hit. We were well under. We had to make some cuts. And so since then, we're, I'd say, in the kind of 15 to 20% range, which is much healthier. It gives us a bit of a buffer. It's been a, a definite shift in my mindset of like, when I look back, there was a lot of growth experiments we ran that just were totally inefficient. And again, because I was like, we have to grow, we have to hyperscale, all this stuff has to be, you know, I'm reading the Saster blog and I read the predictable revenue book and mm-hmm. this and this and that. And I'm like, we had some very basic things that we weren't doing very well that we could have done to improve. And I think at the end of the day, with a services business, especially with recurring customers, there's a very simple equation that I'm embarrassed I had to model it out in a spreadsheet with this big, long, like very deep spreadsheet. Basically, if you take the average number of customers that you onboard every month or that you're able to sell and close every month, you take the average monthly recurring price that they pay you and you take the average lifetime that they stay, you multiply those three together. And that is your theoretical revenue cap. And yeah. the only way you could grow that is by changing one of those things. So you can either outsell it, you can either raise prices, or you can get your customers to stay longer. Getting your customers to stay longer is the one I wish I would have focused on first. Instead, I focused on revenue or raising prices, and those lead to unsustainable growth. So I think if I was to start again and start a brand new services business, the only thing I'd focus on is customer lifetime first. Then I'd focus on kind of price and then sales. Yeah, for sure. Well, I know today we're diving into really the sales side and like your four pillars of sales, which I'm super excited for. But I definitely want to touch on that retention thing because I think it's really, yeah, really overlooked, right? So, is there anything specific or any tangible things you guys have done now that you're focused on lifetime value retention? Any numbers you can give us? I mean, I think the piece I would add is like it comes down to prioritization of company resources. As the visionaries, we're in charge of strategic direction. We're in charge of making sure everybody is pointing, okay, this is what we're going to do. And it's just a matter for me, there wasn't any specific like magic bullets down the stack in terms of, oh, we did this, we changed this one tool or we added this one process and suddenly customers mm-hmm. were staying longer. It was, it's been a repeated me beating the drum. This is the direction we're going. Our goal is to extend customer lifetime. Right now, the way we're planning things is we pick one thing a month as a senior team that we say, okay, this is Let's pick one thing that the four of us can accomplish or the four of us can all work towards to make PR a better experience for our customers. We all contribute to that. It's a fairly lightweight planning process. That's kind of how we're doing it right now. We're doing this in lieu of EOS and rocks and and all of those things, which are, I don't want to get on my EOS soapbox, but I do think for a lot of services businesses, it is both the best and the worst book to read. It's the best book because if you've never built a business like myself, or if you built a business, but you, you didn't have that guidance and leadership over how to structure and how to run a company. It's an amazing book. It's a terrible book when 
you overuse it and you spend a day or two planning every quarter. I think that's a huge waste of time. A half day, sure. Unless you're like a $10 million business or a $20 million business, like the chances of you doing, if you're a one to $5 million business, doing a three month planning, trying to plan out your next three months is incredibly hard. There's going to be so much changing in between. And so to invest two full days with your exec team, to do all these things, to add all the structure to do this, I think it slowed us down and it felt, it caused us to focus on the wrong things, which was trying to build our book to EOS and be really dogmatic about being an EOS company versus paying attention to our customer. And at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is customer lifetime, which means the only thing that matters is the customer and our delivery for them. They don't care how we plan. They don't care how we do our executive check-ins. They don't care how we communicate our values. I'm not saying these things aren't important, but they are not the most important things. And so if you're one to 5 million and you haven't read the book, I 100% would encourage you to read the book. Read the book, listen to the podcast, do a little bit of it because there's certainly stuff in there that adds an absolute ton of value. The thing I would caution you is like three months in to be like, okay, we've learned all this stuff. Let's just stop doing it and see which see which pieces naturally feel like we need to be doing those. Yeah. And you were mentioning before about the company size. So when the company's more doing 10, 20 million at that point, would it make more sense to be more in-depth of planning and structure? Is that what you're getting at? I'll tell you when I get there, I probably, yeah. it didn't make sense for us at, at 5 million. The business just wasn't as complex. It wasn't as like, we didn't need that level of investment in the, in the planning. But you know, kids are going off to summer camp. I'll find it when, we get, when you get home. So yeah, for us, what we found was like, at $5 million, we had at biggest, we had a VP kind of executive level. And then we had like a management level where I suspect that full EOS would be really, really valuable is when you have C level, VP level, director level, manager yeah. level. And you need yeah. that level of like the direction starts here. We get feedback from here. It's kind of the top down, bottoms up feedback. And then you have to align these multiple layers. But when it's just a four person executive team and like, I don't know, five or 10 managers, it's pretty easy to sit in a room with the four people once a month and say, okay, what do we want to focus on? And like, we just did this yesterday for our August planning and said, okay, we took 12 minutes at the end of a meeting and said, what do we want to focus on? Let's brainstorm a bunch of ideas and then let's go, I'll write them all down. And then we go vote on them. And the one that got the most votes is the one that we decided to work on for August. And all four of us on the exec team are going to focus on whatever we can do to contribute to this one thing. And so some of us will work together on things. Some of us will work independently. But that's the goal. That's the focus. And then my leaders will take that to their team and say, okay, if there's one thing that you can do, that'd be great. But we're not going to spend, you know, the milestone planning and the rocks planning and the this and the that. Yeah, for sure. It's a little overkill. No, I think it's definitely just keep it simple. And I think it's a great insight about how all of that operational stuff is very internally focused, but it doesn't really affect the customer, right? Totally. Uh, and I will add one thing in defense of EOS is that we still do L10s. If anybody's read the book or is following this, we do a much looser L10 than before, but we generally follow the segue, the personal best. We do add some of the process, but we're not as like dogmatic about following it as we used to be. Yeah, for sure. No, I definitely, um, I've also made this mistake of building systems too early. I remember when I first got started and the first time we had like a 30, 40K month and things started to get a little bit more, I think it was really big. So I realized we need to build some systems. I started geeking out about all the system stuff, hired an operations consultant. I just went way overboard, like hired a project manager and stuff. And then I was like, we just spent all the money we're making. So it's like too early. Yeah, totally. Well, and you missed the point of like, okay, I made 40 grand, put four in the bank. That's four for the company. And then you can dividend out the rest if there's any left. 
Yeah, no, I'm glad you read that book too. I'm actually reading Profit First. I'll check out the one you mentioned, but I'm reading Profit First right now, which is the same idea. Take a percentage of your profit and just set it aside as profit first before you do pay taxes, employees, anything. No, I think it's great. It just kind of helps you operate a little more efficiently. You just figure out how to work with less. Totally. Uh, and it's about prioritization, making sure as the leader, you're focused on the right things and that you're making sure your people are focused on the right things, which is mm-hmm. probably the hardest thing to do. Yeah, definitely. Well, cool. It's awesome to hear more about your journey and some of your lessons learned from building PR. What, uh, let's get to the sales stuff now. So I know you had the PR methodology, kind of the four pillars of sales you wanted to walk us through. So we'd love to hear about that. I'm sure, especially from doing this for a long time for your clients, consulting them and having a 50-person SCR team, which I can't even imagine. You must have learned a ton. So we'd love to get into it. Yeah. I mean, I might be the dumbest person on this podcast because my success to try and extend my customer lifetime is reliant on my customers, account execs being good closers and good at following up and all this. And that's really where the methodology came from. This quest for reducing our churn, increasing our customer lifetime. We were thinking through the problem. We're like, okay, well, we're booking meetings. And we have some customers that we book meetings for and they close, close deals and they stay forever. Love those customers. We have other customers that we book, we'll send like, I had one we've sent 56 meetings to in four or five months. They fired us because they didn't close anything. They rightfully should. Like if you're 50, 60 meetings in, definitely think you need to make a change. However, when we looked at the engagement, we're like, okay, well, let's do a retrospective with the client. Like, why didn't this work? The AE blurted out right at the very end, oh, well, we've never actually closed one of these customers that we had you going after. Mm. And I was like, okay, so who should get fired here? (laughs) Because you pointed us in this direction. We ran in that direction and we booked a bunch of meetings. So like, did we do a crappy job of delivering on what we were supposed to do? Or did you do a crappy job of pointing us at the right set of customers? This is kind of where the four core processes of sales came from, because my belief is from what we've gone through is you cannot like sales growth. Everybody comes to us for sales growth. They come to us because they have been struggling with inbound or they've been on inbound or word of mouth and they want to add another growth channel. They're like, oh, we'll just sprinkle some outbound on it. Just like I was at college, sprinkle some machine learning on it. Everything will be fine. But you can't just, you can't just book more meetings and expect your company to magically grow. Right. What we've noticed is that there are kind of four core processes of sales that all work together. And it's a, it's a chain link system, which if you imagine the chain on a bicycle, and if one of those links break and you go to pedal, chain's going to break or the chain's not going to be able to do anything. The four links are meet, disco, manage, nurture. So meet is your process for meeting new customers that aren't going to inbound to you that aren't in your network. Manage is your process for managing discovery calls and conversations with new customers. Sorry, Disco is that process. Manage is your process for managing pipeline and your reps that are managing the pipeline. And then nurture is your process for nurturing your accounts that aren't ready to buy yet. It's the combination of those four core processes that basically if you're able to do book new meetings, run a strong Disco, but you're not managing your pipeline properly, you're unlikely to close. And an example there was a customer we were working with, they had 682 opportunities in their HubSpot pipeline. And their reps are like, I'm not really sure what deals to focus on. It's like, yeah, you cannot work 682 deals. And they just, the rep just didn't want to lose any deal. So he had never, he'd never lost a deal, which resulted in a massive pipeline of like, well, I just kind of sort by this and that. And yeah, sure. I kind of did a good enough job, but you're missing out on probably prioritizing the right deals because you can't grasp all of those ops 
And then if you have 682 ops, one, you're not looking at all of them every day. And two, you're not looking at, okay, when I go to nurture, which ones do I know that I should be nurturing? Which ones should I pass to my marketing team? Which ones should I manage myself? And so that's where this came from, which was just trying to put together the pieces to educate our clients on. These are the things you need to do if you want to get value out of the meetings that we're booking for you. Because one thing that we've noticed when we hire our own SDRs and when we do this for customers is that when you build an outbound team, it takes about six months to get your first close deal. And then what we saw was per SDR, you're going to get about a deal every other month for that six months, six to 12. What we noticed is that if the account exec or if the SDR was nurturing all of the accounts that they met in that first 12 months, and they were running a strong nurture campaign of checking in every kind of 12 months or every three months with all of those you know, target accounts that replied positively, but weren't ready yet. You know, There were meetings, but those meetings didn't go anywhere. That at the 12-month mark, you started to get a deal every other month from your nurture pipeline. And so it was these two pipelines together that bring you to that magical deal a month everybody's looking for. And if you can get a deal a month per SDR, that's a really great growth mechanism. It's really efficient growth. But to get there, you need to hang on and trust somebody for six months, which means you need to stick with an SDR team, an outsource provider for those six months to get to that first one. To get to that first one, your ease also need to be running a really strong discovery process. If they're just looking for a project in the next 90 days and then saying, nah, then you're going to waste a bunch of this pipeline. If they are running a great discovery call and the, the reps not or the customer's not ready yet, they're saving this information somewhere so they can have an intelligent follow-up later, that's a huge win. If they are managing their pipeline to only have the active ops in their pipeline and to know which deals they need to work, which deals they can nurture and can work on the long-term. On the management side, I basically split my like, the short version is if you're an AE, you report up to me, you're going to, every day you're going to check this one view, which is your active ops. Every Friday afternoon, you're going to check your nurture pipeline. So I basically delete close lost as a status in my CRM. So you either have an active op, you have a nurture op, or you have a nurtural, nurture automatic op, which means the SDR team can go grab that and get another commission on booking that meeting. But nurture manual means you as an AE commit to touching this opportunity once a quarter. And if you manage, if you run a strong discovery call and you understand, you know, if the rep, if the company is not ready yet, what needs to change before you make a decision or before you are ready for this, and you're managing your pipeline effectively. So when that change happens, you are on top of it, then you can run a strong nurture campaign. But you need to be able to do a strong discovery. You need to have a clean pipe to understand and know when to act so that you can follow these best practices. And then you also need to do that Friday afternoon or whenever you want to do it, nurture activity where you are touching these accounts that aren't ready yet. And that's really the trick to going from like zero meetings or zero sales a month to one sale every other month to one sale a month for SDM. Yeah, so everything just works on each other. And it definitely can relate to a lot of people that I just think, you know, marketing is going to grow the business, right? That's kind of the first layer. And I can understand, you know, like for a lot of people, if they're, uh, especially if they're the founder doing sales and they're still six-figure business, low six figures, like they don't have meetings, right? That's kind of where everything needs to start. Um, but then once you get that problem solved, then it really becomes about these other three layers, right? Getting better at your sales calls, managing the pipeline, and of course, that long-term follow-up. So yeah, that's awesome. And by managing pipeline, just to clarify for everyone, you're talking part just about kind of organizing your deals, prioritizing, just like having visibility of all of your previous opportunities. Yeah. And I have a very specific way of managing things, very heavily inspired by, I'd say, David Allen's getting things done and the, the force management folks that do the med pick qualification. 
and, and a few others, but I'd say those were kind of the two big influences. Basically for every opportunity, there are two core fields in my CRM. There is next action, which is a text field, like a paragraph text field, and there's next action date. And everything is based on those two. When a rep logs in, they sort by next action date. You can see the thing that you got to do. Now, those two fields alone don't do shit for you. What it can do for you if your reps follow the process is at the end of every engagement with a customer, at the end of every call, they stop for two minutes and they say, this is what I'm going to do next. While all this context is in my head, whether it's I'm going to send a proposal, I'm going to send a follow-up, so-and-so needs to wait for this to happen. It's that specific, here is the context for myself to action on this, or when I go to nurture this in the future, this is the thing I need to check in on. If you can imagine you and I have a conversation about you want to buy some, I don't know, office plants off me. And you're like, you know what? I want to see how this one behind me goes, uh, grows before I make any other purchases. And I'm like, oh, but you could get this like vine that goes across and we could do like a trellis and we could get this other one that's got a little pop of color. Um, you're like, yeah, yeah, that, that sounds great. I want to make sure I can keep this one alive first. Let's check back in six months. Now, if I write that you want to keep your existing plant alive and it looks like a XYZ type of tree, then when I send that follow-up email six months later, I can ask, hey, how's that tree growing? Because that was the thing like, hey, did you keep that tree alive? That's a great follow-up. But if it's six months later and I didn't take strong note and I'm not able to manage that pipeline, I'm going to send you an email that sounds like, hey, are you ready to buy some more trees? Which is like everybody else versus, and this really comes from the running a strong discovery call, but then having the process in your system of managing opportunities to make sure that you're capturing that information and that you can act on that. The other piece that I would add into the manage step is customer verifiable outcomes for your account stages. And I can send you a blog post. I don't want to go super deep into this, but the second most important piece is these customer verifiable outcomes. Whenever I look at a customer's pipeline, if there are three or four reps, I'll ask all three of them to, or like say there's three reps, I'll ask them all to write down, what does it mean to be in discovery? What does it mean to be in qualify? What does it mean to be in proposal or whatever the standard kind of Salesforce HubSpot stages are? And everybody will write something different. And so if you have three different folks using three different definitions of the stages, then your pipeline stages are meaningless data. And this is what we ran into you know, 11 years ago when we were trying to do this automated forecasting is there's unreliable information going in. So there's unreliable information going out. Getting clear on what the stages are. It's very easy to make it if it's a customer verifiable outcome. That means you know, if they're in qualify, they showed up for the qualification call. If they're in discovery, they brought a economic buyer to, this, to the discovery call. If they're in solution validation, you can confirm that do nothing is off the table. It was a touch subjective, but you've had the conversation with the individual about, hey, you're going to do something regardless. It doesn't have to be with us, but I just want to confirm that this is something you're going to act on this quarter. And when I rearranged my, my pipeline stages like that, it was like that moment in Twister where they finally get this, this like truck full of balls in front of a tornado and they can see inside the tornado. They're like, oh my God, I can see what's going on. Um, and that was honestly the moment I had when we Im implemented uh, MedPick and all the customer verifiable outcomes and the, the stages. I also use MedPick in our CRM. It is not as integral, but it does tell you how much you know about an opportunity. And it's helpful when you get into like coaching and working with reps, but it's more of an advanced tactic than like the base level. Like if somebody's listening and they just take away customer verifiable outcomes, next action date and next action, there's so much power in those three things that you can do with your CRM, it'll take it from something like a set of meaningless data to something that's like really producing 
the, a valuable dashboard and it'll turn your opportunity view into a sales productivity tool for your account execs. Yeah, I love it. Super simple things to do as well. And um, yeah, I mean, I can confirm from experience, like it just, once the deals are to pile up, you're just going to forget everyone, right? Like even me and you, we met a month ago. And then today you're like, hey, what's, what's the podcast about? What, what are we talking about? <laughs> so like, so yeah, we just forgot this, right? Um, it's, and it really helps to have that contextual follow. So would you say that as long as the discovery goes well and the pipeline is managed well, that the nurture process is pretty straightforward? Is there any tips or like common mistakes you see with the long-term nurture? I mean, the long-term nurture, uh, most people just don't straight up do it. And they're doing yeah. these like standard sales, like, hey, you ready to buy some plants type follow-ups. Yeah. Um, if you do, if you are running a strong meet process, so you are meeting new folks and in your discovery call, you are doing a good discovery and understanding, okay, not ready now, what needs to change? Great. And you're capturing that. And then you're sorting and organizing it so that you can manage, you can follow up at the right time with a simple contextually relevant email, that's the thing. But you can only get to this really strong nurture email if you do a good discovery and you manage your pipeline effectively so that when the time comes for, you know, you said in six months, okay, well, I'm going to put that in right around January 3rd, I'll follow up and maybe, you know, a couple of weeks ahead of time because, you know, I'm a sales guy. If I do a strong discovery and I know the thing that needs to change and then I manage my pipeline effectively so that I know when I need to follow up, that gives me the ability to send a really strong contextual follow-up. And so there's no like secret trick in the nurture. There's no like secret email of like, is this a priority for you? I mean, I do love that as a template, but it's really more of like a breakup email. Like, hey, you know, we had a conversation or a couple of conversations. I sent you a proposal. Is this still a priority or has that changed? It's a great, it's a great nurture or it's a great kind of like breakup email just to understand, but there's no magic. There's no silver yeah. bullet. They can replace really strong process. There isn't. For sure. For sure. So we'd love to dive into the meat stage as well. But just to touch on discovery, like what in your eyes, what goes into a good discovery? What are some other common mistakes you see people make there? Um, I mean, we work with a lot of software companies and I find a lot of I find a lot of people, a lot of companies, I think they're getting better now, but they're very trained on like this is a demo. This is a demo. I'm just gonna whip my deck out. I'm gonna walk you walk you through with my with my demo. Would a lot of people miss? is when I run a discovery call, it's an hour long and I'm not talking about predictable. I'm hardly talking about predictable revenue. It is one of those like 80-20 conversations where it's 80% the customer talking, 20% me talking, ideally. Because the there's this old sales book I read in college. It had some generic sales name, like the new sales, something or other. It wasn't anything by Mike Weinberg. I'm, that's just the book that's coming to mind. But it, it had this idea of like selling check or like a selling V. And if you think about coming down on this side of the V, if you start here and you're kind of working, if you start up in the, the top left and you're working your way down to the middle, this is you doing discovery. And coming back the other way is you presenting to the client, you telling the client about your services. And it's not exactly that, but this, it's directional correct here. The core idea is you're not allowed to talk about your, your product, to tell the customer about how you can help until you've reached that bottom of the V, which is a point of mutual understanding, where it's not that the prospect understand, not I understand the prospect and the prospect understands me. It's I understand the progress that the prospect is trying to make. And the prospect understands that I understand that. And the way I do this, I'm stealing from Mark Kozoglo from Outreach. He's their VP of sales or was, I think he might be, there's a different title over there. So apologies, Mark, if I get your title wrong, but it was diagnose and confirm. You're asking your questions to understand, okay, what is the core issue? Okay. So it sounds like if you told me I've got this one plant, 
and the rest of my wall feels a little bit empty. My plant is feeling lonely, cries at night sometimes because it has no friends to hang out with. I would parrot that back to you and say, okay, so what I'm hearing is you've got this one plant, it's this, this, and this, and um, it's a little bit lonely. Did I get that right? Or what did I miss? And when you do use these summaries all the way down to understand each different element that you need to run on a discovery call, what ends up happening is that customer, you elongate the conversation, but you're getting to a deeper level with the customer. It's not just one, okay, tell me your thing. Check, check, check. Okay, you're qualified. Now let me go. It's a true discovery. Okay, let me, let's talk about this. Okay, so it's this, this, and this. Am I right? Oh, no, no, you're missing that. Okay, cool. So now let's go in that direction. And you really poke around. And for me, I kind of think when I coach a new AE at PR, I coach, I walk, I encourage them to think about themselves as like a revenue therapist. You pay your therapist to listen to you and give you a little bit of advice. You don't pay your therapist to give you this big sermon. They are not a public speaker. They are primarily a listener. That's our role in this conversation. Your job is to listen, to make sure that you understand, to ask some questions, to kind of steer, okay, let me understand the entire situation. And then when you get to this very base, if you can summarize, okay, so what I've heard is this is most important. This is also kind of impacting that. And then these are the three things you want to accomplish. Did I get that right? And the customer goes, yes, exactly. That's right. You nailed it. Like, great. This is how I think we can help. But by the time I get there, we're usually 50 minutes into a conversation. We need to book another call. So to me, a really strong discovery call is the act of going through that and and really gaining a deep understanding of the progress that the prospect wants to make so that I can make a really strong recommendation about how and why they should choose us to solve that problem. And then I'll make a recommendation. And like in the next call, I'll say, you know, at the end of the call, I'll say, oh, usually something along the lines of our X service might be able to help you with, you know, X, Y, Z. Um, I'm happy to share more about that. Let's book another call and, and go from there. Because usually by the end of an hour, like, Going beyond an hour on a sales call is a, is a bit too long. And then booking another call allows them to digest what they've heard. They come back with questions. And so to answer your question, discovery call is about asking the right questions, but not just asking them, going really deep and truly understanding the progress that your prospect wants to make and getting to that point where you can make a recommendation and then see what the customer thinks about that. Yeah, no, I love it. And I totally agree with like all of that. Because yeah, not asking questions just to ask a question and check a box, right? But to actually like really truly understand like the problem, the root cause of the problem, and how it's affecting the prospect, right? And I think too, the whole thing about listening more versus talking, it's it's not even so much just for you to understand their situation, it's also for the prospect to like think about their problem and internalize it, right? And, and kind of talk about it and kind of tell themselves that they have an issue, right? Because if you just talk at them for an hour, it goes in one ear or the other, you're like, oh, it's a salesperson. But when you ask questions, I get them to think about the problem, they start to kind of come to their own conclusion that they, they need it. Mm -hmm. And when you have conversations like this and prospects are like, hey, the time isn't right, I have multiple prospects where instead of going through the whole, okay, I'll email you in Q2 or Q3 or next year, or whatever. I'm just like, hey, let's book a call for September. I've got one that's coming up. I just talked to the guy yesterday. He's like, yes, we're almost ready to go. We need to do this one last thing. Like I've been talking to this guy for nine months now. And all we do is I'm like, hey, cool. Let's book 30 minutes in a month or in three months, then we'll check in. And I strongly suspect they'll be ready to go in a month. And I haven't had to do any follow-up whatsoever. I just booked the next call three months out. If you've done a strong discovery call and you've proven to the prospect that you're not just going to show up and talk at them, that you're here to actually listen and offer some helpful advice along the way, you've kind of earned their trust as like a, 
an advisor. And like the work that I'm doing with this prospect is kind of advisory work that some people pay me and my company a lot of money to do for them. But it's part of the process. I believe that our process should be, our sales process should be one that a customer would be willing to pay for because it's that good. Mm, that's awesome. That's a great way to look at it. Well, cool. I know we're running out of time here. So just the last question would be, if there's anything you want to share on the meat stage of, you know, in terms of prospecting or if you want in a different direction, curious like what you think, what you see happening or changing in terms of the prospecting landscape, right? Because I in just the last two or three years, you get so much more saturated and so more people pitching. Yeah. Same with cold emails. Still last six, 12 months, I get way more cold emails. So I'm kind of curious like you're just your take and what it's going to take there and how you see the road ahead. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody's going to be doing this like AI SDR motion which I think is the wrong motion. I think OpenAI has done an absolutely fantastic job with their large language models. I love them. I don't think having an AI write personalized emails is the right approach. I'm not saying it's bad. I think there's a time and a place. And there's, I think there's an advantage to having a little bit of variability in your message in certain spots. But from, um, is it going to be a step change? Like, Is an AI robo SDR going to be that much better than a human? I don't. I strongly think that's the wrong direction that we're going. I think so much of what's good is really, I think the most important piece is targeting. When you are, as a leader, as somebody who is in charge of pointing the sales team in the right direction, the most important thing you can do is point them at the right set of target accounts. And if you don't have the means to build that list, then to engage in the process of building your list. And I can't remember. It was one of my podcast guests years ago said this, and I can't remember who I wish I could attribute it to them. But basically, if, you are a, if you're the sales leader, if you are the company leader, and you do not give your sales team, your revenue team, strong direction over who your best customers are and who you should be reaching out to, you're effectively outsourcing the most important question, who's, who are my best customers, to the lowest level in the, in the company, which is your most newest SDR. And yeah. is that really the place that you want that decision to be made? I don't mean this as any slant against against SDRs. I think SDRs are perfectly capable, but they're not going to have the same context, understanding of the direction, understanding the customer, understanding the market as the CEO. And so I think as the CEO, as the CRO, as the VP of sales, our job is a strategic direction. And I think the delivery of that is these accounts, or at least this is what the top 100 accounts look like. This is what the top 1,000 or 5,000 or however your market is shaped. It is that strategic direction. And I think the one thing that's been really interesting for us is using AI and a multi, a bunch of different enrichment sources to feed a chat GPT prompt at scale of here's seven or eight different, here are seven or eight different enrichment data points that could be like revenue, number of this type of salesperson, number of that type of job title, have raised this amount of money, are a services business or are a SaaS business, are B2C, are B2B. Etc. And then feeding that into a GPT chat GPT prompt that says, "My ideal my customer does, or I do this. This is the value I provide. These are my best customers. These are the things I look for in a good customer." And then at scale to feed that into a to feed all those like five or ten thousand accounts into this model to be able to say, "Okay, based on what I'm seeing, what the chat GPT is seeing, to have a look at that and say, "Okay, from these ten thousand, these two thousand are more likely to be your good your best account." We're calling it like an account qualification model. You could call it automating SDR research or scaling SDR research. But for me, that's been a bit of a game changer for us. It's been the work that we were doing internally to help double the output of our SDRs. That was our goal this year, was basically doubling the output of our SDRs. And this was a core component of it. 
because if you're focusing on the wrong people, then it's hard to hit your goals. If even if you can book a meeting, that meeting isn't going to turn into a paid customer. We're heavily incentivized to make sure that we're finding the, our customers' best customers. Yeah, just like your client that you booked 60 meetings for and they didn't close one, right? So I think it's, yeah, very, very important thing to look at, right? And a lot of people heard it before, right? Go after the right niche, have the right targeting. But I mean, you can have everything else right. Great offer, great messaging, great outreach. But if it's not going to the right person, it's like trying to sell me two vegan, right? It'll never work. Maybe one out of a thousand, but maybe one of the most important. Trying to sell me another plant. It's like, I know it's just going to die. It'll sit there <laughs> for a little bit and then it's going to die in like three months. I'll move it up there to where the window is. <laughs> you did have a plant last time I talked to you. It must have been. Up. I did. Yeah. <laughs> she's she's suffering. She's suffering. <laughs> <laughs> Rotate plants in here. It's like the torture chamber. And then we move them up to where the, to the window that gets light. <laughs> Well, if there's any plant salesman in the audience, then you definitely have a, have a customer here. A repeat buyer, for sure. <laughs> totally. <laughs> cool, man. Well, where can people find you if they want to connect with you or learn from you or work with VR? Uh, uh, PredictableRevenue.com is the website. You can find the Predictable Revenue podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We also have... Uh, you can also look at us up on YouTube. We've got some new and interesting videos coming out there. If you want to hit me up and ask advice or work with us, Colin Stewart on LinkedIn is the best way to find me or call in with two bells at predictablerevenue.com if you're wanting to get in touch. Awesome. Well, we'll uh, definitely link that to everyone for the, who's watching on Facebook, you'll see down below. And we'll link it on the podcast as well. You can see it in the show notes. But uh, man, really appreciate you coming on. This was an awesome conversation. Thanks, AJ. Thanks for having me on. And uh, good right. to meet everybody. See you soon. Cheers.